Well, welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your host, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story, joining you on this, our 200th episode. 200 years, 200 years. <laughs> I'm already messing up. <laughs> 200 episodes over five years. Uh, you guys have been entirely gracious to join us and be with us during this time. We are uh, hoping that this particular program is a real blessing to you. I think we've got something in store for you that's just going to be a real treat. want to remind you, we are part of the Christian Podcast community. Uh, there are a bunch of good podcasts on there. I always encourage you to check that out. Also want to remind you, go to slavetothekingcom and you can go on our website. You will find the link to doctrineandlife.co. They are the folks that are actually carrying our official t-shirts. We actually finally have t-shirts. It took five years, but we got them. Uh, so we hope that uh, you'll be able to you know, pick yourself up one and show a little support for the show. And uh, as we've said in the past, if you are interested in helping put the you know pay the little bit of bills that it uh, takes to put this on we do have a patreon link on there as well we'll leave that between you and the lord and uh, if you are so able and god has so put it on your heart consider doing that but uh also this next week uh two a couple of things i will not be here to record with rich next week because i will be at the cruciform conference in indianapolis indiana i believe there's still time to get yourself a, a tickets to go to that it's going to be on uh, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's appearance before in the Diet of Worms, uh, the topic is still standing. Really going to be a great conference. They've actually are crazy enough to allow me to do a live podcast from there with uh, Chris Huff and somehow Andrew Rappaport snuck in. I'm not sure how that happened, but uh, we we're so we're going to record from there. So there will be kind of a twofer. We will have a podcast ready for you for next week, but we'll have a live podcast and I'll put that information out as we get it put together from Indianapolis. So thank you for being with us. And uh, this time we kept the announcement short. I think it was a little too long last week, Rich. So how are you doing this week, brother? Well, as I always say, better than I deserve. And especially tonight, I'm better than I deserve because I am so excited about this 200th anniversary episode. And I will let you divulge why i'm so excited <laughs> yeah this is actually a real treat uh um, we're hoping for you but really a, a real treat for us uh we actually uh cajoled a, a, a particular um well a well-known theologian apologetics uh teacher debater well and the guy who has made my life interesting in the last six months thanks to all the interesting mail that has shown up in my house thank you uh, <laughs> we, we have with us uh, none other than Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Dr. White, thank you for uh, agreeing to come on and be with us this week. Well, it's the least I could do after uh, people start making me feel guilty saying that your house is so small that all the, all the buddy paraphernalia was driving you uh, to live in your front yard. I really don't think that's probably the case, but uh, anyway, people were trying to guilt me about about all that. But, but uh, no, I... Uh, I like to uh, to encourage folks. I mean, I'm not going to be around forever. You guys uh, seem to be younger than I am, and uh, so um, uh, help help you all sort of start trying to catch up with this. You've got a little ways to go. Just a little. Uh, y'all are, you know, maybe about two thousand episodes behind <laughs> us or something like that. But, it's just, you know, just a uh, tiny bit. Just a tiny, a tiny bit. Behind. You've been at it for five years. We're coming up on. 40 uh, <laughs> years. Uh, so, yeah, you know, 
uh, Daryl and Virgil are always talking about, uh, you know, uh, we're we're going to do our 250th episode and we've had this many people and all the rest of stuff. And I just sort of sit back and go, nice to see the kids enjoy it themselves, you know? Um, cause we, we sort of, honestly, we sort of started this, um, and it was in, it wasn't cause we were, we were farsighted it's cause we were poor and, uh, we were, we had a Saturday afternoon radio program on a local station here in Phoenix and it was expensive, uh, especially for us, it was expensive to do it, but it was important to do it. And we started realizing that all of our phone calls, almost all of our phone calls, were coming from the internet, which was very new at that point. Yeah, and it was a it was something called Real Audio. I don't know if you all remember. Yep, Real I remember. Audio. I remember Real Audio. Remember. Real Audio was before MP3. Yep, and um, it was a less effective but earlier uh, compression methodology. And so we're sitting there going, all of our calls are people who are listening on the internet, and that was a new, pretty new thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we decided, you know what? This, I think it was like $700 a month for an, wow. a Saturday afternoon. Who listens to radio on a Saturday afternoon? Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's dead air for the station. It's pure profit for them. And so we uh, just set it up, set up the dividing line as a, as a webcast and started doing it that way. And here, here we are uh, all these years later. And we don't, we don't track um, for example, anybody who listens through Apple, we don't even know about it. We don't even track <laughs> it. Um, so when, when I recently counted like 42 million downloads or something, that was just YouTube and Sermon Audio. That wasn't wow. any of the Apple stuff. We just don't get into that stuff because so much of our audience is overseas. Um, uh, when I had the opportunity of traveling in 2019, I, I flew 165,000 miles. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and that included multiple trips to... Uh, I ran I ran a 10k along the, the the beach in Melbourne in December of 2019. Man, you couldn't do that now. No. Um, and I was in South Africa and all over London. I mean, I probably spent almost I don't know about six weeks in London in 2019. Um, I mean, I could get myself around that city. Uh, I know the tube. Um, it, it did street witnessing uh, in London. I mean, I mean, London's a beautiful, beautiful place. But anyway. Uh, when I was, would go to South Africa, I'd have these twice. I had groups of young black men come up to me at different churches because the churches there are very mixed. You know, you've got whites and Indians mm -hmm. and blacks and, and the worst thing that America's ever done is, has been to export wokeness to places yeah. like that. Cause it's pure poison in those contexts. But I, twice I had a whole group different groups of young black men come up to me and they said the same thing both times. They said, if we hadn't been able to listen to the dividing line, we wouldn't have gotten through uni university right. uh, with our faith intact. And uh, that, that for me is, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole reason you, you do all this stuff. And that's undoubtedly, you know, that was what the Lord was working out back when we were too poor to do anything else uh, other than start, using this weird technology of web. Well, no one called it webcasting. <laughs> Eventually somebody came up with the line, like we've been doing that for years. What are you, what are you, what are you all thinking you're so hot about? But anyways, and we've never spent a dime in advertising. Not once, not even those Facebook things where we'll promote this for $10. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. We've never even 
and and not because we were uh, not because we think there's something wrong about that. It's just it's been word of mouth, and yet I think globally the you know we've probably got the widest audience out there just simply by the fact we've been around longer than anybody else has. No, you know? absolutely. But, and it's unique. I mean, you got to admit, I don't know if you heard, I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to embarrass you if you heard the last program, but I probably blew 90% of my audience off of listening to that particular episode because the fact I went so in depth on a topic that we've gone in depth on years and years and years ago, mm -hmm. but we haven't for a long time. Uh, it was on Islam. Right. And I think a lot of folks today are like, eh, that was yesterday's news as if the billion Muslims on the planet have disappeared. Um, and we really went in depth because I was talking about a young man that I was listening to while driving. I went to, went to prior Oklahoma um, testing out the RV thing and listening to this young Muslim guy, I'm going to tell you something. Um, I just wonder how many i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put you guys on the spot because you know, th that would be very very unkind of me <laughs> very mean but very much like me um but this is here is a here is a muslim guy talking about early christological heresies and quoting william lane craig who himself is a christological heretic um and talking about Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism, Council of Chalcedon. Now, what percentage of uh, evangelicals do you think would feel confident in answering a question, define the hypostatic union, and then define the errors of Nestorianism, Eutychianism, and Apollinarianism? What, what percentage? I'd say 2%. I, I was going to say it's... I'd say 2%. I wouldn't say it would, couldn't even get up to 5%. So yeah, I would be with Rich, 2 to 3% at most. Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would say more like 1% maybe, yeah. to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and so if, uh, if the Muslims are starting to bring this type of stuff up, which they should have been doing all along, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. but this guy's doing it, uh, you have to deal with apologetics on the level of where the actual apologetic interaction is taking place. Mm -hmm. And from the start, I mean, uh, you know, Alpha and Omega Ministries initially grew out of two Mormon missionaries. My encounter with two Mormon missionaries at my sister-in-law's home six months after I got married. So that would have been uh, late 1980. Well, actually, no, it was about six weeks after I got married. So it was about it was the summer of 1982. I met elders Reed and Reese at my sister-in-law's home. And we had two meetings uh, on a Monday and a Thursday, as I recall, for about two, three hours each time. And that was the genesis of Alpha and Omega Ministries. I don't think they realized that, <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, or if they did, they've probably left the Mormon church or, you know, <laughs> their bodies are hidden in a cave someplace. I don't know. But, um, but that's what started it and it was initially dealing with mormonism and the challenges that came with that i had no one to guide me but i very quickly came to the conclusion that after reading every book on mormonism at the christian bookstore that i could find that i needed to look at all those references down at the bottom of the page and i needed to start going to the lds bookstore 
and getting their books and reading their stuff. Right. Because I, I knew at the ripe old age of 19 years old um, that it was possible for even Christians to be less than accurate in their representations of others. And so going to the original sources and learning, learning to think like a Mormon was what made me effective in talking to over 5,000 Mormon missionaries over the years and going to Salt Lake City and doing live radio programs. Uh, I remember doing one on KTKK radio in Salt Lake City. Uh, it was a Mormon attorney as the host and two BYU professors <laughs> against me. Oh, boy. With live call-in in Salt Lake City where all the callers <laughs> were Mormon. Okay, that's mm. about as outnumbered as, as you could possibly be. Yeah, that's kind of hostile territory there. <laughs> kind of hostile territory. And, and we did it um, because we took the time to read their material. And I very quickly realized going into uh, Grand Canyon College back then, now it's Grand Canyon University, um, that I needed a real solid foundation in my own faith. And that's why I minored in Greek and, and majored in biology as well as Bible. It was a weird, weird mixture <laughs> of things. Um, but especially focusing on those biblical, those biblical languages, really, really, really important. So anyway, that's how we got into all this stuff. And so when we do our programs, um, they're weird. I, I mean, the, nobody does, no one would even come up with the mixture of topics that I sometimes cover in a single program. And I, and I know there are people who's like, eh, I guess get past that. I, I get it. Um, but they're all related in the sense that we need to give a meaningful apologetic response. And so often what I'm talking about, about Islam is relevant to Mormonism, or when we get into the subject of the defense of the scriptures, defending the scriptures against the attacks of Islam very frequently is the same stuff you're going to be talking about when you're dealing with uh, atheists mm -hmm. uh, or, or whatever else it might be. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I do not have anywhere. I have, I have no earthly idea what I will be doing on the dividing line next week, other than the fact that I've already invited um, the Muslim metaphysician, Jake, right. uh, to be on the program next Thursday. So I know Thursday what we're going to be doing. And I've, I've sort of thought I need to get back to the Trent Horn response on church history. Right. So, right. But, I, but I don't know if I want to do that because Rich is rich, my rich, not your rich. <laughs> uh, we both have a rich. It sort of sounds like a bond servant type thing uh, we've got going on. You're rich, my rich, whatever. But my rich has, is up to something. Um, he, didn't, he didn't expect me to go into the office today. I did because... Uh, I was t I've been teaching a church history class for a wonderful uh, Reformed Baptist church in Germany for over a year now. And we it's just wonderful to get to do it. And my book that I was using was at the office, so I went in to do that. And there's Rich, and there's all this stuff in the back of his truck. <laughs> and he's in the main studio, and he sort of pokes his head out, but he keeps the door closed. He's up to something. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what. So I'm not sure that I can actually do the... Trent Horn response. Uh, I, I like using my big flipboard. You got to admit, oh, you yeah. are jealous of the flipboard. Everyone, I, your entire studio, I'm jealous of. <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 quality stuff. But that flipboard is so 
much fun to be able to put the text up there and write on it and do all sorts of things. It's uh, <laughs> it's amazing. And uh, so he's got something going on. I, I don't know. What oh, it I is, definitely got to be tuning but, in for this. I got to see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> but, but the point is, I, I, I don't after that week, I have no idea what the next week of dividing lines is going to be. And, and I know that's really weird. I was at a major ministry once back when my ministry was much, much smaller. And we're still small. It's just Rich and I. We're the only, that's it. That's that's the entirety of Alpha Omega. But I went to this one that had lots of employees and stuff like that. And I was waiting to talk to the head guy. Uh, I was going to be speaking for him that night. And up on this whiteboard is this, I don't know, massive fifth generation organizational chart, uh, stuff about, you know, contacting supporters and fundraising letters and all the rest of this stuff. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah. Okay. Well, oh, that's how that works. That's how that works. Well, we ain't ever doing that. And not because there's something wrong with that. It's just, we ain't smart enough to do that. Lord just have to take care of us in some other way. And he has, and, and he has uh, really, really has. So anyway, I don't know why I started talking about this stuff. It's not really what we're supposed to be talking about. Well, in all fairness, so much of well, what you, actually. Oh, oh, go ahead, Rich. Go ahead. Well, I, I'm sorry, Chris. I was just going to say, actually, some things that Dr. White just said is actually a good lead-in for the first question, which would actually would be a good springboard for your question, Chris. And you know, we had discussed tonight's topic being the discussion of developing a Christian worldview and the whole issue of a neutral worldview, but. <laughs> Right off the bat, I would like to ask Dr. White something that I get asked from time to time. So I'm just going to kind of phrase this as a combo question and comment type thing. But Dr. White, how would you respond to someone who questions using using apologetics and evangelism, a statement like we should just proclaim the gospel and not get sidetracked into worldly arguments and debates? The gospel is all we should be focusing on, especially when dealing with a secular person or someone that claims to adhere to a neutral worldview? <laughs> well, no, obviously, immediately, um, a, a sound Christian should recognize there is no such thing as a neutral worldview in the first place. The myth of neutrality is one of the most pernicious, uh, destructive beliefs that has crept into the church uh, that many people in my generation, and I can I can identify myself as the older generation these days. I'm I'm not 60 yet, but I'm <laughs> close enough to smell it. Um, I'm right there. Oh, I'm and, not behind you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there, and I'm fighting it as best I can. Um, I'll get up tomorrow morning and do probably about 70, 75 miles uh, on the bike outside and listening to all sorts of fun stuff. That's 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 how I do my study study time. But anyway, my generation bought the myth of neutrality. It really, really did. Um, and that gave us a, a weak doctrine of the church, a weak doctrine of the church's role uh, in relationship to the state, which, wow, over the past uh, 15 months, we've all been faced with having to think that baby through um, in a way that we, we hadn't had to before. Um, but the, the first thing I would have to challenge if someone used that terminology is there's, there's no such thing as a neutral worldview. Uh, the radical message of the scripture is you're you're either in submission to your creator and re in rebellion against your creator. There is no possible way to not be at enmity uh, with the one who made you uh, when you're suppressing the, the knowledge of him, which is Romans chapter one. 
Uh, so that's the first thing to address. And then the second thing that goes along with it is you can't focus on the gospel without dealing with apologetics for the simple reason that the proclamation of the gospel involves the challenging of the false beliefs of the people to whom you're seeking to present the gospel in the first place. There are presuppositional issues that have to be dealt with. I am a presuppositional apologist. And um, the reality is that when you look at the gospel proclamation that someone like the Apostle Paul gives us examples of in the book of Acts, he's dealing with apologetic issues. He's, he's, he understands, for example, on Mars Hill, um, who he's talking to, what they want to hear. He understands what they believe, and yet he will not allow them to control the content of his proclamation based upon a desire to get a particular response from them. And so the language that he uses, the fact he starts off quoting their own philosophers to themselves, uh, demonstrates that he is involved in apologetics and proclamation all at the same time, because all apologetics is, you know, the, 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 the most famous text in 1 Peter 3.15 isn't really about what we've often made it to be. Um, I've been preaching a sermon now since about 2005 when I really figured out what was going on in 1 Peter 3.15, and I hadn't known for many of my adult years of, of ministry uh, but when you, when you exegete it, you, you discover that what Peter is saying there, he's saying to everyone, all believers, that all believers are to treat the Messiah as Yahweh in their hearts. He's quoting from Isaiah. And the fact that we don't often recognize the Old Testament backgrounds for New Testament texts is one of the biggest problems. He's quoting Isaiah, and he's, he's identifying Christ as Yahweh, and he's saying that we should treat him as holy, set him apart as holy in our hearts. And this, therefore, becomes how we prioritize our way of thinking and our, um, how we do everything and how we respond to everything. And when that happens, because it, always, always, it always bothered me in the back of my mind that when you hear what Peter says, that we are to give an apologia, is the proper pronunciation, though my church says apologia. They came up with that before I came along, so I <laughs> no longer argue with them about it. Um, but we are to give an apologion to those who ask us for a reason for the hope that's within us. Now, to be honest with you, most of the people who cite that text it's not people who are asking them for a reason to hope. It's people they have tripped up on the sidewalk and are, are trying to pound a message into. And it always bothered me that, well, you know, what, what's going on there? But I hadn't, hadn't dug into it. Well, the reality is if you're setting Christ as Yahweh, as God, treating him as holy, that's going to prioritize everything in your life in such a way that you're going to respond to the world completely differently then the world responds. And so people are going to see that and they are going to ask you, why do you have hope and no one else has hope? Mm -hmm. Why are you different than the world around you? And so that, that reasoned defense is of the whole of the Christian life, not just 
the gospel message, it's the gospel message is included, obviously. Right. Paul says in Philippians chapter one, he's been appointed to a defense <laughs> of the gospel. Okay, great. But that gospel, we, we truncate it in, in America to a message where you get your ticket punched and that's all it's about. It's, it's just that thing over there. And there's so much more to it than that. Peter himself is pointing out that, that there's so much more to it than just simply that. That's vitally important. There's all sorts of heresies about that that need to be dealt with. All of that stuff is true. But the reality is um, that it's, it's much deeper than that. And so when, when someone says, just focus on the gospel, look at the examples in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, when you focus upon the gospel and you preach that gospel into a secular society, um, you're going to be doing apologetics all along. You're going to be doing apologetics in the very terminology that you use to express the claim that you're making, or by your avoiding certain words so as to not bring offense, you're going to be abandoning apologetics and fundamentally uh, degrading the gospel in the process by putting man in the position of being judge over what God has said in the gospel. So that's a long response to a short <laughs> question, but um, yeah, it, it does get to a lot of the important stuff. Uh, yeah, I, well, that's I, wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. No, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think some of the things of what you said is, is what I've kind of been uh, becoming to over time beginning to realize more and more as you said the myth of neutrality that so many of us have thought we can enter into these discussions by getting into the moralistic reasons we can get in, into it for you know maybe it's biological political whatever and we abandon the very tool that we have which is the word of god we abandon our biblical worldview at that point we've lost we've already lost the discussion because we've abandoned the very tools that we have that God has equipped us with in his word. And it's interesting that, you know, like you said, when people say, well, just preach the gospel, just preach the gospel, as if there's not something else that we're, we're encountering when we're sharing the gospel. You, you said it yourself that we are confronting the very beliefs that they have, the very mindset and thinking that they have that is that that mindset that is trapped in the deadness of their sins, just as we were before we came to Christ, before we were made uh, made alive in Christ, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so, just sharing—if we just share the gospel—we're still challenging that. And well, I, you have to, yeah. you have to challenge that. Well, okay, there are less than forceful gospel presentations that try to avoid any challenging at all. That's right. the problem. Uh, but Especially when I talk about the myth of neutrality, though, what I'm really focusing upon is that there are so many involved in apologetics who really function on the idea, and I did as a, as a young person, because that's just all I was exposed to, mm -hmm. um, that what you find is this neutral ground uh, where we lay aside our presuppositions, they lay aside their presuppositions, and we come to this neutral ground, and if we just reason together, then we can reason them into seeing the reasonableness of the Christian faith, that their entire ministries, like reasonable faith, um, <laughs> that attempt to do exactly that. And I was in error in, in two fundamental areas. Uh, I was in error in a high theological area, and I was in error 
in anthropology. So in other words, the idea that there is such a thing as a neutral ground should, should cause any self-conscious Christian to go, wait a minute, if, if anything exists in this creation, God made it. In fact, according to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus made it. He's the creator of all things. We're in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, authorities, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things soonestic, and they hold together. That's a pretty radical claim. That's, that's, that, that's, a, that's so radical that it's pretty much going to get you excluded from the academy. And so scholars don't like to make it because they, they want that seat at the academy, um, at the table there. Uh, but it's a radical, radical claim that, that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the creator of all things. If that's true, and that's the message we're trying to communicate, if that's true, then he made everything, every fact. So there's nothing neutral. Yeah. There is nothing. If all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, if he's the creator of all things, there, there can be no neutrality. There can be, I cannot lay aside that presupposition and say, let's just reason on the base of everything else. Because the reason anything else makes sense is because he made it to make sense. Yeah. That's, the, that's the first thing. Absolutely. Most Christians have never thought through the relationship of theology proper, their doctrine of God, and epistemology, how we know anything. That should be something that is at least covered in Sunday school classes, but in reality should also be modeled regularly from the pulpit. It really should. But it needs to be there. And especially now that we're dealing with a, you know, my, my great grandparents or my grandparents did not have to deal with half of these issues mm -mm. because they're, the, the people around them accepted the Bible as an authority and you went from there. But the reason we're seeing the stuff we're seeing right now is we have, we've gone past the tipping point in America in the conversion into a secular worldview. And so there's no way around it now. We have to deal with these things. There's no, no question. So my first error was on theology. And the second error, of course, was on anthropology. And that is the person that you're dealing with. If, if, you, if you have not seriously worked through Romans chapter 1 and listened intently and carefully to what the apostle says there, you know, if you just realize this is this is Paul writing to the church at Rome. He knows that if he can establish the truth in Rome, it's going to go everywhere because all roads lead to Rome. I mean, that's right. the state of the Roman Empire at that time. And he clearly constructs this 16 chapter letter to present the gospel. And the first thing that he talks about for two and a half chapters is the bad news. Mm -hmm. It's about sin. It's about man's suppression of the truth. It is central. It, clearly what he's saying is before I can tell you about justification, before I can tell you about redemption, before I can tell you about the cross, we've got to understand the state of man. And those chapters are some of the least popular chapters mm -hmm. in all the Bible. Everybody loves Romans 8, but nobody really <laughs> wants to deal with Romans 1, 2, and 3. Right. Well, at least through 319. <laughs> and so... <laughs> when you look at what Romans says about man and about how man is in rebellion against God and has exchanged the truth of God for, for the lie, 
and realize that, that man in his natural state is suppressing the knowledge of God. It changes everything. The, the whole idea, I mean, okay, Romans 3 says, there is none who seek after God. So the seeker-sensitive movement is sort of silly from a biblical perspective on that level because the Bible says there is no God-seeker. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how it can be any plainer, but but there it is. And so once you put those two things together, it it changes everything as to how you try to be consistent if you try to be consistent in your proclamation of the gospel. Um, now, there are just a lot of people in evangelicalism that don't think that that drive for consistency is relevant. But the fact of the matter is, you can't define truth without using terms that refer to consistency. Yeah. And so Christians should be consistent people all the way along. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned that you mentioned seeker sensitive movement. And I, I, I got to thinking about this just recently. Um, I know you had mentioned on your show on, on several occasions that what we're starting to deal with now, for example, with the critical race theory and woke movement and stuff, were things we had not anticipated. And I started thinking about as we were looking at things like the seeker-sensitive movement and and efforts to water down Scripture and water down and, and, and question whether Scripture was really sufficient or inerrant, and, and as, as we saw in things like the, uh, the emergent church movement. Even though the evidence of all those movements is that they they're basically have failed, the damage that we have seen within evangelicalism has been that professing Christians don't have that foundation. They, they, they are not, they're willing to accept the godless worldview that is being foisted upon the church because it sounds good, but they're not questioning it from that, that biblical worldview because they, as you say, they've bought into the myth of neutrality, but they've also been, you know, so many churches have failed to build in their people, like you say, in the pulpit, this should be evidence, this should be, uh, t uh, you know, being preached, should be taught, and we, they should be seeing it happening from their own pastors, yet we fed them a steady diet of garbage. It, it's something that would make them feel better about themselves. And now what we're dealing with is a massive influx of a worldview that is built nothing on Scripture, but everything on a Marxist or postmodern or uh, some such ideology that makes people feel like they've done something, makes them feel like they're contributing, but they're not actually doing anything re representative of Scripture. And then when you bring the, the truth of Scripture in, that's when the fight begins. And I, I appreciate that you're you're uh, you're pointing that out that we have to have those foundational understandings because without them, if we're not building a, a Christian worldview within our, our our congregations, how are they going to stand against this kind of thing? Well, as as uh, as shepherds, um, obviously our 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 desire is to equip the sheep to be able to stand against these things, but. Um, as shepherds, we have to have a theological commitment that that is definitional to what the church is supposed to be about in the first place. And unfortunately, knowing the state of most seminaries, and I, I, I have to say most, there are exceptions, but they are small exceptions these days. Knowing the state of most seminaries, that's not, what's, that's not what be, is being taught. That's not what they are being told. Uh, that's not what they're being prepared for. Uh, the classes that you have to take in most uh, seminary 
situations today um, are equipping people to do things the Bible never calls the elders of the church to be able to do in the first place. And Thank um, you. our, yeah, well, our, we, we've brought this on ourselves in many ways, but uh, at the same time, I'll, I'll never forget, I was teaching systematic theology for a Southern Baptist seminary. And the president, the new president of that seminary came out to talk to our campus. And I'll, I'll stand in the back of the room and I've got all sorts of students in that room. And I have stood there and told them, I have said, systematic theology used to be the queen class, the queen study of a seminary education and everything else was related to it. It gave, it was the hub of the wheel and everything else were the spokes going out from the hub of the wheel. Um, now it is just out here is just one subject and there really isn't any hub of the wheel left. And I explained why that's dangerous and why you have to have systematic theology defining everything else. And I convinced them of that. Well, here comes the president of the seminary basically saying, well, look, we are, we are going to have a, a, a consistent emphasis in the seminary on training leaders. We need leaders in the church, not theologians. We need leaders, you know, and I, every once in a while, some of the, some of the guys will sort of shoot a, a look back and I'm just sort of like, yeah, well, okay. You know, um, we'll debate that one too. Um, I, I didn't have long, I didn't have long there, but, um, I mean, I taught there for years, but, uh, eventually someone who has lost his job called and made sure I lost mine. So uh, <laughs> that's nice. another long story. But um, so, you know, we see this happening. I, I'm going to be really, really interested in seeing what happens at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention coming up here. Is it next week or the week after? Um, uh, I think I it's coming up this week, week after. Yeah. Cause I know week they're after. getting, I know they're getting ready to do that uh, conference that, um, Founders is putting on the one day pre-conference. And I think that, yeah, I think you're right. It's the week after. So, yeah, well, it's coming, it's coming quick and it's going to say a lot about not only the SBC, but you know, the SBC is technically the largest Protestant denomination. I say technically, um, I, I think the numbers are, are probably ridiculously high as far as what people say they are. You know, if, if you don't go to church more than three times in a year, I'm not really overly <laughs> taking your, your, your commitment overly seriously. Um, so that sort of gets rid of a lot of the Southern Baptists, but still they have a decision to make. And the question is how much politics is going to get in the way and how, how confusing that, that decision is going to be. But the numbers will tell you where we are. And I think there's a split coming in, mm -hmm. in the SBC. Uh, maybe not this year. Uh, maybe there'll be a super strong effort uh, to try to avoid that happening, no matter who's elected. Mm -hmm. um, but I just unfortunately see that as far as I can tell, all of the Southern Baptist seminaries, all of them, including Southern, are compromised on critical theory and the whole woke movement. I mean, some of the, it's, it amazes me uh, given that I, I listened to Dr. Moeller on the briefing, but some of the most vicious critics that I have had when I make statements against critical theory or its application or, or things along those lines 
are Boyce College students and students at Southern Seminary. Yeah. Now, Southeastern, we know. <laughs> As, <laughs> and sadly, outside the SBC, Dallas Theological Seminary, um, these, I, I can't, uh, I cannot think right now of a an ATS accredited seminary that does not already have people teaching there that are fundamentally compromised on this on this issue. I, I can't. And that's and, sad. That's very sad. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. It, it's not. It really shouldn't be overly surprising given mm -hmm. the history of Christian education and its love of the academy, the love of the praise of the world in regards to the wisdom of the world. And yeah. that, uh, how many seminaries have ever got, become more conservative over time? Yeah. You, you can count them on one hand and some of them go back to the, the other direction eventually anyways. You know, Union Theological Seminary, great example of all the Ivy League schools. What were they founded as? They were founded as Christian universities. And we see them today as just, you know, uh, synagogues of Satan. Um, but there's there's a reason for that and i and i think it's because the message of first corinthians one and two gets lost and, and suppressed over time and and we don't we do scholarship in a worldly fashion we don't do scholarship within the church we do scholarship so as to be respected outside the church and when a culture is given over in judgment by god to the foolishness of Romans one professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. Their, 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 their foolish minds were darkened. Um, they became futile in their speculations. I mean, the Paul's brutal, but it's descriptive of exactly what we're hearing. I, I, I saw a tweet yesterday of this woman at some university in California, uh, which might as well just break <laughs> off and float over to China. Uh, as far as it's, it's uh, politics are concerned. Um, just listening to this doctor speaking to these students and just recognizing the utter childish foolishness of what is considered to be the wisdom of the world today. Um, we should not have any desire whatsoever to mirror or imitate that. Yeah. And yet the reality is that's, that's where Christian education goes. And um, so there are still some places that are standing for, I can guarantee you right now, you all saw what happened with Owen Strand when he went to yes. uh, Grace, Grace Baptist. And that the, was, uh, that was just going to be one of the things I just brought I was going to bring up. Yeah. The yeah, whole strip you, mall you, seminary thing. Yeah. The strip mall seminary thing. Um, I'm getting that. Hoodie. I have taught, <laughs> I have taught in both the accredited and unaccredited fields for years. And I have degrees from both types of schools. And people criticize me, well, that THD, that's not accredited, stuff like that. The accredit, I was part of the accreditation process for a Southern Baptist Seminary's regional campus when I was teaching there. I had to be a part of it. They were getting their ATS accreditation. I saw it from the inside. And the vast majority of what had to be done had to do with parking places in the library. Um, hmm. There was tremendous focus upon how many parking places you have for fully paying students versus for auditing students. Right, right. And then even though the, the place where we were meeting at the time was within six miles of the library at Arizona State University, which is huge. And it has a huge 
the, uh, theology section. It's a very good library, only six miles away. We had to have a certain number of paper volumes in our library. And we had to hire and pay someone with a master's of library science degree to gain accreditation. Goodness. Which you know, all that does is it increases the cost, increases the cost, um, has nothing to do with the quality of your education at all, at all. I knew back then that ATS accreditation was going to be the tool used to fundamentally end big box Christian education in the United States. All you've got to do is pass the Equality Act, which is that close, um, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Every major seminary has, all, has known for 10 years that they have to transition into a government money-less system. So if you know what Pell Grants are, mm -hmm. you know, I, I went to school back in the eighties. And so I got Pell Grants Well, I paid my, well, Pell Grants aren't, aren't paid off, but the student loans, yeah. um, you know, I actually paid all of mine off. That's what you did back in my day. When you took out a loan, you actually paid Shocking. off. Shocking. What a Shocking. concept. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, Pell Grants and stuff like that, people 10 years ago who were looking and looking ahead and seeing what was happening, transitioned out of all that. But many of the big box seminaries are still very dependent mm -hmm. upon that kind of funding. And it's all going to go away as soon as the Equality Act passes. And all of the accrediting agencies will require any accredited school to submit to the Equality Act and to hence embrace the LGBTQ mm -hmm. revolution. And if you do not have positive statements promoting those things, you will lose your accreditation. And so um, I have been saying for a long, long time, scholarship is something you do. It's not something you purchase. Yeah. yeah. And we will finally have to live that out. Um, but it's going to be painful for a lot of folks in, in the process. And the strip mall seminaries will already be ready because they're already deeply connected to the local churches. Um, and they're already not using that government funding stuff. And they can live on a lean income uh, because most of their professors are tent makers to begin with. Uh, it's the big box places that have those massive, huge libraries that will have to make a choice. We either bow and become affirming um, or we close our doors. And a lot of them will bow and become affirming. Yeah, they will. No, I, abs I, abs I absolutely agree with you, especially when, like you said, what happened with Owen Strand. You watch the mindset of those who think accreditation equals somehow being more scholared, being better equipped. And some of the debates that have come out of that, uh, I wish I could remember the individual who did it, uh, who had gone into that on Twitter, but he, he was making that, that, that very claim about unaccredited schools that basically there's that no, big long there, thread. yeah, the big, there's yeah, no, yeah. There, there's no challenge. There's no, there's no uh, oversight. There's nothing. They can teach whatever they want kind of mindset. And the sad point is, you just pointed it out. It has nothing to do with actually what you're teaching, but with all these other these other rules. And now they're going to attach, you know, godless, mindless, uh, you know, worldview to it. That if you don't su submit to this, you're going to you're going to lose accreditation. And the interesting thing is, is that how the world will then perceive that is, 
the only the real Christians who have gone to these schools are the ones that are real churches because they're the ones getting the real education and they'll have that mindset like that one individual said. They'll, oh, well, you don't have any oversight. There's no, uh, there's no real scholarship going on there. And so that's, I agree with you 100% that we're going to watch that happen. And sadly, a great many, as we're already seeing with things like critical race theory and such, are already caving. They're already caving they in that direction. They are. And they so, are. They so are. I guess my question with regard to that is, you, 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 uh, you touched on it with the the, the strip mall seminary concept that the, the idea that they're being, uh, you know, plugged in with the local churches, and that's when they're they're uh, they're getting their their teaching and they're 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 getting their assistance with funding and such. Would you then say that for the Christian that is concerned about a, a good, sound biblical biblical education? What is the answer? Is it going to that? Is it is it you know working with local churches to develop something like that? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to say that there's there's only one way to do things, but no, I agree. When I, I, agree. When I look at scripture, Second uh, Timothy two two has always uh, been very important in my thinking. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As far as I can see, that's the only thing that the New Testament says about how the teachings of the apostles uh, are to be passed on, and they are to be entrusted to faithful men. Well, the only way you can know who a faithful man is is if you know his, know his life. You can observe his life over time. And so the whole idea that what we've been doing, where you take a guy, you take your best most faithful young men, and you rip them out of the church they've been raised in and ship them off someplace else and then indebt them to, the, to where they're buried. And I mean, I don't even know what it costs to go through a, an MDiv now, but it, it's $80,000, $90,000 just simply in, yeah. in, in tuition. You, you indebt them to, so they can never, ever be a part of a small church. Right? They've got to go for the big church stuff and the salaries and all the rest of that stuff. That, that has never made sense to me, and yet that's, that's where we went because it was the model of how you're supposed to do these things, and you had to have the big high-powered uh, uh, seminary professors, and they had to have the big degrees from the big universities, and they had to go over to Europe and go to Oxford and all the rest of this kind of stuff, as if that somehow gave, granted them some level of, of scholarship. And so what I think we're going to be seeing if current trends continue, okay, and I do not see them changing right now, uh, I, I would love to see a, a huge revival breakout. Um, but let's, let's be honest, given the consistency of the degraded worldview that has been taught to the next generations uh, that will have power soon and are taking power right now, um, it would take a pretty massive social upheaval yeah. to bring about a fundamental change in how people are thinking. Um, I mean, I, we were talking before the program started. I, was, I listened to um, a dialogue, an hour-long dialogue that my fellow elder at Apologia Church, Jeff Durbin, um, did with a pro-LGBTQ, pro-choice pro-BLM young lady, probably in her early 20s, uh, on Apologia Radio yesterday. And listening 
to Jeff gently unravel her world. Just that, just that over and over again, she was just left staring at the camera. She had, she had no way of answering the question. And he, and, and like I said, I told Jeff, you're so much kinder than I am. Uh, he would, and I hope he did learn this from me because I am the one that has said, when you're in a witnessing situation and they don't have an answer, you can either go in for the kill at that point and end everything. Uh, or if you want to continue it on, you need to give them an escape at that point and make sure that they're gonna think about that and now make further points later on, maybe have given them more to think about maybe on down the line. Um, and that's what he did. I mean, he gave her a lot to think about, but it was just so sad listening to the worldview that this woman accepted as being absolutely a given. I mean, at one point, honestly, Jeff was just pushing her on where she drives her sexual ethics because she had objected to I guess she's a lesbian, but mm. she had objected to some adult lesbian uh, going after a 13-year-old girl. And Jeff's like, why? And so he's pushing her. He's saying, so you don't think there's a problem with five guys and three gals? No. How about 20 guys and 15 gals? And she says, I think it's crazy you'd have a problem with that. Wow. And mm. you hear that. And you realize how utterly destructive that is of her as a person, of every relationship she could ever have, every, everything she could ever teach if she were to even have a child. Um, you, you see how absolutely destructive that is. And then realize that's pretty much where our culture is mm -hmm. today. And so what what could ever bring about a change in that? Well, it would have to be, historically, it's something cataclysmic. Mm -hmm. It's war, it's famine, it's plague. Um, who knows? Persecution. Well, for us, not for them, yeah, yeah. but for the society as a whole, it, it's, I, I cannot see a, a gentle return to 1950, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just don't see how that's gonna happen. Um, and so, I've come to the conclusion that my, my calling is to, to do what 2 Timothy 2.2 says long-term in the sense of communicating the Christian worldview and the foundations of the Christian faith to my children, now my grandchildren, four grandchildren that I have, um, and to all the other young folks out there. I, I mentioned the program yesterday. I had a really heartwarming and encouraging experience uh, when I went to Little Pryor, Oklahoma, the church I've been to there a number of times before. Derek Melton, uh, I, I held up the knife Derek made me. Please try not to, please try not to be too jealous of that. Um, uh, yeah, see, you, you, you get nice gifts like I, really handmade knives. I get, I get sent elf stuff, so hard, hard not to be jealous. <laughs> But at Christmas, you can. You, I, I'm still saying this Christmas, you could you could really minister to the young people in your neighborhood by all the all the elf stuff that you have, and and maybe we'll get in the future. You never know. Um, but anyways, I'm I'm walking into the church, both night the two nights, and both nights, one of the first things I saw when I walked in was a young girl, two different girls. First thing I can tell immediately, this is a homeschool family. 
<laughs> minimum six kids. It's just sort of a look, you know, there's a sort of a look. Um, and she just, her eyes just lit up and you could just tell she was so excited to see me. Now that's scary in of itself. But what that told me is this poor child has probably seen every dividing line that I've done since she was born. <laughs> Uh, which is which is great. And I've had homeschool families send me pictures of their kids watching the dividing line and stuff like that. And that's awesome and wonderful. And so I got to meet these kids and take pictures with them and talk to them and stuff like that. Um, that uh, those those kids. OK, they're the ones that are going to be taking the faith through the upcoming cataclysmic period. Yeah. And what is being, what is coming into existence right now cannot last. It cannot last. Critical theory breaks everything down. Um, the Chinese communist system. And if you don't, if you don't think they're not already our overlords, look what happened to John Cena. <laughs> oh goodness. A couple days yeah. Ago. Wasn't that amazing? Yeah. He, he cites exactly what is true. Taiwan is a country and now he's apologizing for it. And now he has to apologize in Chinese, grovel oh at goodness. the feet of the, uh, the of his new Chinese overlords. That's where we are. But that system cannot last. Now, given given our technology, it might last a whole lot longer than the Soviet Union did, which was seventy years. But it will collapse. And I think when it collapses, it takes this secular system with it mm -hmm. and there needs to be something to take its place and the only thing to take its place is the light from the empty tomb and so that's what we've got to be communicating amen to those next generations and that means that everything we thought about what successful church is for the past 50 years has to be abandoned um, absolutely you're you're absolutely. not going to have these big massive mausoleums and all the fun kid camps. Um, you're going to have serious, smaller places. Um, maybe you know, that, that's just, I don't know how you hide from the technology that exists today. Um, the church could hide out in the woods in Russia, mm -hmm. uh, but there is no place to hide on this planet from, from drones and satellites and infrared and, and everything else. So, I don't know. Uh, the Lord will continue to build his church. I'm not sure how he's going to pull it off in some of these situations, but uh, it's, it's challenging times. And it's interesting because when I went, when I went to prior, uh, Derek asked me to speak on the glories of the doctrines of grace. And I had to, sp I, I almost went two hours the first night, just simply saying, what I want to do is I want to do this, but I want to try to bridge the schizophrenia gap that I feel because I can talk about the doctrines of grace like I did back in the year 2000. I mean, it was 2000, 2001 when I wrote, wrote The Potter's Freedom. And so I'm responding to Norm Geisler, but the world isn't coming apart at the seams. Uh, the, no one could have imagined in 2000 that mm -mm. we'd have what's going on in, in the world today. And so that was one context of speaking of the doctrines of grace. I don't want to get into a situation where my theology, where my dealing with the Trinity and Christology and everything, 
is something over there and the real world right. is this stuff that's going on with rising totalitarianism and, and technocratic communism. Um, if, if, we, if we become schizophrenic like that, we, we're not gonna survive. And so I really tried and I've invited people to listen to see if I was at all successful to present the glories of the doctrines of grace and then make application to where we are today. It was pretty easy with the sovereignty of God and the depravity of man. That was the easiest part to make the connection to because the rest of it is all, okay, in light of that, here is our hope, basically. Yeah. Um, but I felt it was important because I just sort of feel like a lot of, a lot of Christians are like, why should we even talk about the stuff that we used to talk about? Because man, if this is what's happening and, and the government's going to be doing, mm -hmm. telling you when you can have church and how many people you can have and whether you can have the Lord's supper and whether you can sing and uh, arresting pastors and checking them in jail. Does any of the rest of that stuff really matter? Well, it does. Mm -hmm. It's the whole reason why we do the getting together and worship thing in the first place. So yeah, lots of stuff to be thinking about that. Again, my, uh, and my, my grandparents didn't think about any of this stuff and, no. and never, ever dreamed. I, 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 my mom died, um, 11 years ago and, and, uh, I, I, I just don't think she could have survived just looking at what's going on around us. Um, she just, just would have said, this, this that, is not possible. That's my concern is my grandchildren's grandchildren. My oldest grandchild is a little over five years old, and I worry about what her grandchildren are going to oh, face yeah. in this world. Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, uh, Doug Wilson said something in a, in a movie I watched a number of months ago where he, he, he basically said, most Christians simply do not live in light of the reality of their great-great-grandchildren. Yeah. Um, we just don't, we don't think that far ahead. And I won't get into eschatology, though it's sort of hard to avoid it <laughs> these days. Um, but there are certain eschatologies that would basically say, yeah, you don't have to think about your right. great, great grandchildren because you're not going to have them. They're not going to be there. And that results in certain people saying, yeah, it's foolishness to, to make plans like that because obviously we're right there at the end and that's it. And I'm, I've become concerned about what that means. Um, and I think the older I get, uh, the more I can see myself. And of course, I've taught church, the first class I taught when I graduated from seminary, uh, the next year I was made a uh, scholar in residence at Grand Canyon College, and I taught church history. And I've always loved teaching church history. I think it's extremely important. And uh, I've realized for a long, long time that Christians down through the ages have always thought, this is it. Uh, we're, we're yep. there's, there can't be a tomorrow, basically. And that has impacted how they have behaved and how they've responded to things. No, no two ways about it. And so once you have so many examples of that down through history, if you don't start learning from it, um, I, I don't, you know, we're, we're not learning the way we should from, from those types of things. But anyways, we've, how, <laughs> are there any other topics we haven't covered so far? I, mean, I was going to say, uh, we, I think we've pretty well covered just about everything. I, I, I think one of the things that you said that to me, is so important is 
the the idea of we're not just teaching theology, but theology and application. Um, I, there's so many people we've heard it with the Romans 13. Oh, you got to submit to the government. What does that actually look like? And because we haven't always done that or we've always been focused on the growth of the church and stuff like that, we have people who don't understand that. And it, and on top of that, we have people who have it, and I think it's Vody Balcom that in one of his books referred to it as multi-generational faithfulness, that you're teaching not only your children, but they're to, they're teaching them to teach their children, to teach right. their children. Right. And I think that's going to be so very important now, because as you said, I absolutely agree, this system's going to collapse in on itself. It can't not. When, right. when you have a system that's built on layers of victimology, eventually somebody's victimology has to trump someone else's. Forgive the term. Probably get yelled at for that using Trump. Um, but yeah, really. <laughs> but uh, at some point, once somebody demands to be more important, and, and you're going to have not only fighting against the people they claim are the, are the ones causing everything, but against each other. And you've pointed out how even within the LGBTQ community, it actually refutes itself on so many levels so if we're not preparing our our families and our children and their children to think about how to deal with these issues how to apply scripture how to uh explain and 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 live in light of those things then we're setting them up to be you know succumbed into this system and i i I appreciate that you say that because it's easy for me to want to read a book and learn all kinds of stuff, but I have to then think about, I've got two teenage boys who are very soon going to be young men and out of the house and on their own. How do I prepare them? And so what I've always tried to do is talk about just so many different things that we see going on in our lives and how Scripture tries to apply to that and make that part of our daily discussion. Because if we're not doing that and we just relegate it to Sunday school or we relegate it to the to the a Wednesday night Bible study and that that's all that we ever do, we haven't prepared them to think biblically. No question about it. And I certainly have I've certainly had to um, reevaluate uh, a lot of the things that I imbibed from my younger years and from time periods where no one could have dreamed of persecution of the church, um, anything like that at all. But here we are. Yeah. And so um, if you've studied church history, then there's lots to learn from back there. The one thing that concerns me is the technology now. Yeah. That, that's, that's the one thing we've not faced before. The absolute constant observation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would not be at all surprised if there is a um, Chinese communist agent um, listening to everything that we're saying right now. I would not, that would not shock me in, in the least. No, I agree with you. And so that, that to me is where there's going to be a need for a tremendous amount of wisdom mm-hmm. uh, in the future. Uh, very, very much so. Yeah. Dr. White. Yes. Dr. White. Go ahead, Rich. I have a quick, a very quick, short question. Cause I know we're about out of time, but we are in essence, the first generation of Christians to have access to the internet, all these social applications, all these different means of communication all over the world. What would be the one best thing Christians could be doing now to honor Christ with the access we have with the internet and Twitter and Facebook and everything else? What could, what could and should we be doing to help proclaim the gospel of Christ 
to make sure that we are reaching around the world with his word. Well, uh, you know, I think we're already doing, um, a lot of people are, are doing what we can in the sense of, uh, you know, like, I, I, I'm not going to argue with someone who has left Twitter because they say, well, if you sign on to Twitter, you're helping Twitter make money. Okay, I, I get the argument, but I've, I, I, I want to be a Twitter martyr someday, uh, basically. Um, I, I want to be ushered out forcefully uh, because I, I attempted to be a light for as long as I could uh, in that context. Um, because I, it's amazing the number of people that I've been able to contact. I don't even know, honestly. Um, let, me, let me, I've got it up here. Uh, okay, I, I lost a bunch, and I'm back up to 65.1K, so 65,000 followers, okay? There's <laughs> people with a whole lot more uh, than, than I have, but there's 65,000. I mean, let's say 10,000 of them are bots. Um, that's still 50,000 people that I can get communication out to them fairly quickly. Um, like I said, the dividing line... It depends on the topic, but you know we'll have thirty thousand uh, views uh, over its various formats, various things, and sometimes way more if it's a controversial topic. And so we're we're trying to reach out as best we can with a consistent message to as wide an audience as we can uh, as well. I always encourage folks. Look, when we do a debate, if you find a particular program that was very useful to you download it, archive it, um, stick it inside uh, one of these little bags. The uh, sort of disappears on my screen there, but uh, the static static bags to try to protect them from electromagnetic pulses uh, that could, could be coming our direction. Uh, try to try to store them in a long lasting fashion uh, because I don't know how long we're going to have these uh, these freedoms and these opportunities to do these things. Yeah. Uh, but I know I've certainly been trying to take advantage of uh, overseas things. I'm really bad at it. There's a couple of people I really feel really bad. And <laughs> I, I want to be on their programs, but I keep forgetting to get back to them and they're overseas and stuff like that. And I, it's, it's terrible, but I'll, I'll get to it eventually. And uh, so uh, taking advantage of those types of things and uh, leaving a, leaving a testimony behind uh, a lot of people are going to be asking in the future, what were you people doing? Mm -hmm. uh, I think my generation is going to get blamed for having been, been asleep at the switch yeah. uh, because that's when the change took place. Uh, something happened after World War II. So something, was, something was horrible, so horrible about that war that you see it in Britain first, mm -hmm. just a massive abandonment, um, really starting after World War I and then accelerating after World War II, just a massive abandonment of any type of religious faith at all. Yeah. And it's been slower because we didn't lose as many yeah. uh, people. Um, the, the, the slaughter in World War I, just the, oh, was unbelievable. And World War II was, was equally bad on a different level. Um, but I think that had impacts, and, but it really accelerated under our watch. And it was, it was my generation that was messing around with silliness like seeker sensitive stuff while our seminaries were being invaded and 
and really our culture. You know, I, I remember very clearly when the when the wall fell and we, hey, democracy has won. And the reality was the wall fell because what was behind it had been abandoned. Um, they had already invaded our universities. Yeah, they, they had they had paratrooped over the wall and landed in our universities and said, it's a whole lot nicer over here. They've got much nicer stuff. Let's take let's take this over. Uh, let's leave the rest of that stuff to crumble and fall apart. And we didn't win that war. Uh, we're seeing that now. Um, and it's a, it's a sad, sad reality. But um, I was trying to remember, I was trying to remember who it was that said that they would, it was a Soviet, I believe, said they would defeat America without, without ever firing a single shot. And that's what I see in today's world. Well, what I see is the, is the, is the CCP doing that. Mm -hmm. um, the CCP is our greatest enemy, and um, I, I think they made their move in November of, of last year and succeeded. Yeah. And uh, uh, the results we'll be living with for, for quite some time. I agree. Uh, Doctor, I, I, want, I just want to say from Rich and I, we appreciate you coming on the show. You're, uh, it's an honor. Yeah, that you, you gave us your time and uh, we've, we've both benefited from Aomen and uh, the dividing line and uh, we've always hoped that what we've learned and seen you do with in trying to uh, deal with topics in not only in a direct and theological fashion but being fair even to the people who are your uh, opponents in these discussions we've always tried to hope that we could do something similar with this and so your being on here means a lot to us, and we're grateful to have you on board. Uh, you, this has been just a, a wonderful opportunity, and, and to be able to pick your brain a little bit and and uh, and get our, uh, our 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 audience a chance to to hear some of the things that you've had to say. Um, is, any any last thoughts for for everybody before we let you go? Well, uh, certainly, uh, congratulations on uh, on two hundred episodes. Um, we'll. Uh, We'll, we'll see if you make it to 500 or if, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the fact that uh, someone actually did obviously uh, work with me in, for example, helping me to ship <sighs> you, um, certain important stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, I knew that, it was coming. I knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll have I to just, put this video I just want you to know he's, he's always there. <laughs> he's, he's always behind you. Yeah. Rich is going to pay uh, for that one of these days. <laughs> Rich, Rich needs to know that, uh, yes, that Buddy, Buddy just became the background of my screen, so he, he can understand what, uh, what's going on there. But um, but no, we appreciate your uh, your putting up with all of this uh, craziness. And uh, uh, hey, you know how many how many people have people they've never even met before in their lives sending them Amazon. <laughs> gifts and cutouts of buddy and things like that. Well, I, guys, I, I will say it was giving me a little bit of ptsd to even go to the mailbox at one point yeah, so yeah, well, <laughs> getting I, a twitch you gotta, you gotta embrace it you know it's better than nobody caring you know? uh, I, think, I think that's i think that's important and and someday the funny thing is i'm sorry the funny thing is chris doesn't even know about the number of people I refuse to give his address to or advise them. No, he would rather have this, this, or this than that. <laughs> oh, you people are uh, sick. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> well, well, there you go. One little comment blows up on the internet, and uh, you end up. At least so far, no one has sent you an elf suit. 
that would that please would be don't one. give them ideas <clears throat> don't give these people they will <laughs> do I, it did i just ruin something yeah, there? i hope sorry. not <laughs> I, I didn't mean to ruin a christmas present. oh man please do not give well, these people ideas conference is next week uh, and there's a lot of men that will be in attendance that have our warped sense of humor so uh, that's all i'm saying i'm just starting to wonder if i should get on that plane now <laughs> yeah, yep, 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 yep. Yeah, well, I I ain't getting on planes. So uh, there's, uh, there's there's a problem with that. So well, so. some some of us don't have nice nice RVs yet. So well, I I don't have one yet, but I'm hoping to soon. Yeah, uh, that's that's gonna be that's gonna be helpful. So, anyways, well, thanks guys. I hope it was useful and uh, appreciate what you're doing and uh, congratulations on 200 episodes. Thank you very much, Doctor White. We really appreciate you too thank as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Well, thank you for joining us this uh, 200th episode. 200 episodes. It still still blows my mind um, that you guys have put up with us for that long. Quite honestly, and uh, what a, what a, a joy to spend it with one of the people that I've uh, just come to respect and admire for uh, for so many years. Uh, Rich, any last thoughts uh, as we let let everybody go? Well, like I said at the end of each show, whatever you do this week, make it a point to proclaim the gospel at least once a day. And if you're not proclaiming the gospel while it's legal, what makes you think you'll start proclaiming it when it becomes illegal? Amen. Amen. Folks, thank you for being with us. Uh, if you have not, I don't know why you would be listening to us and you've never listened to Dividing Line, but if you've not been listening to Dividing Line, uh, you really need to go over there. Go to aomen.org. They have the link. Go to the, the YouTube channel. Watch the videos. They're, they're, I listen podcasts because I drive a lot, but really, if you can sit down and watch the videos, you're always going to learn a lot because Dr. White puts a lot of stuff up there. Uh, go check out the stuff he writes and definitely give him a follow on Twitter. If you haven't, I, what rock are you living under? But uh, but with that with that said, it, it, if we can leave you with anything, if, if, if 200 episodes is the only thing we ever got to do, if we could leave you with anything, it is this. The, God, the, the Word of God is your lens. It is your foundation. It is everything that you need for life and godliness. And the world is not going to give you a neutral playing ground. Dr. White is absolutely right. There is the, it is the myth of neutrality to think that you can engage anything in this world without uh, either being in the Word of God or giving it up and being in their worldview. It is the worldview to man or the worldview to God. You don't have an option for a third part. There, there's just, there's, there's, you're in Adam or you're in Christ. So you're in the worldview of man or you're in the worldview of Christ. The Word of God is what you need to know. And you need to be able to not just know it, but how are you going to live according to it in this day, in this age? And how are you going to equip the next generation and the generation after? So if there's anything, if we never got to do another podcast, if there's anything that we could equip you with that is be in the word, know it, understand it, apply it. And then as my brother Rich said, go out and preach the gospel to somebody because there's a lot of people that need it. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for spending 200 episodes with us. We hope, God willing, we'll be able to continue to do this for years and years to come. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time. Good night. Mm -hmm.